Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. I'm super excited for our guest today. Martin Reed Miller is a research scientist and team lead at DeepMind. Welcome, Martin. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me, Robin. Happy to be here. We are going to focus on your tokamak work as well as some of your other work. You have a long and, and storied career in, in RL research. But let's start with that exciting uh, work from 2022. That was the paper, Magnetic Control of Tokamak Plasmas Through Deep Reinforcement Learning. DeGrave et al. 2022. This made quite a splash when it came out. It made the news. Uh, we all heard about it on Twitter. And uh, I've been looking forward to this chat for actually about a year. So I'm really ex excited that we, we were able to make this happen. Um, so I understand in this project you used reinforcement learning to control the magnetic field in a fusion reactor. And I read that tokamak is from the Russian phrase describing the shape of this toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. So, um, and, and you're using RL to control the magnetic coils to shape the plasma. Is that, is that what's happening here? That's exactly what's happening. So the plasma per se is not stable. So if you wouldn't have any control from the outside, it would just uh, touch the vessel. And this would be very bad because it would lose its energy. There's a lot of temperature in the plasma and it also would damage the vessel. So you need an active control to keep the plasma some, somehow in shape without any mechanical interaction with the environment. And that's what, what, and that's what basically uh, the, the magnetic control does the magnetic coils do they keep the plasma in a certain position and in a certain shape i understand there was some type of controller before and i saw some diagrams of kind of quite scary uh nested pid controllers i did one uh, course in control systems in in my computer engineering uh degree and i found it quite a difficult course so it uh it was scary for me to see those diagrams what was the control system like before how were they doing it before so they were, as you said, they were using classical control, um, basically having an, an observer that um, mapped the, the current observations of in, within the tokamak uh, to an estimated uh, state, and then using classical PID controller for each coil separately to control each shape that such uh, that the plasma, the state of the plasma matches. Uh, the desired configuration. And this uses a lot of uh, prior knowledge, of course. Uh, you have to design the observer, which was quite an effort that they did at that time, and also a, a careful kind of uh, calibration of the individual PID controllers, uh, so that actually these shapes that they were able to control until then uh, could be controlled. And what we did basically uh, was to say, is there a better control method where we can uh, control all the coils uh, more directly so that we only have to input the observations directly to our controller, map it to control signals so that we can kind of um, do a deliberately deliberate shape control uh, without going through uh, having an, observ an observer and then uh, designing the PID controllers. So a much more direct method. And can you talk about like how you perceived this problem when you started on the project? Were you pretty confident that this could be accomplished with the RL tools you had at the time? Or did you consider it quite a risky project and you weren't sure how it would turn out? 
Yeah, it, it was actually a, a very risky project because uh, the Tokamak uh, was not in our lab, of course, it was in, in Switzerland, or is, it is still in Switzerland, in, in Lausanne, and we had uh, great colleagues from, from the Swiss Plasma Center there. Uh, so we didn't have uh, regular access to it. Uh, we have to rely on their input in order to kind of make progress. Uh, we, we had a simulation and we had first a simulator where we had some initial results which looked quite promising. But it, uh, when we first saw the actual device, how complicated it actually is, uh, we, we were really aware of how risky this project actually might be, uh, be in, in, in different respects. Uh, so one respect, uh, in one respect, uh, it's of course, it's a 19 dimensional input uh, or 19 uh, input, uh, 19 dimensional input space, which is quite a challenge for reinforcement learning in general. Uh, so the reinforcement learning per se uh, is, is a challenge, but then also the biggest question was, uh, is the simulation accurate enough? Uh, can we make it accurate enough so that actually this transfer for, from learning and simulation will actually work on, on the real tokamak? And the signal that you usually get is just it works or it doesn't. And then you probably have two or three other trials at the same day. And then basically the week is gone and you have to wait, wait for another week. So this was quite risky and, and quite a, a challenge for us. Can you tell us more about the simulator and the uh, and the kind of the pros and cons of, of the simulator that you had access to? Yeah. So first of all, I'm not an expert in this simulator. So this simulator was provided to us by Federico Felici at, and, and colleagues at EPFL. So they already had a version. And what I understand is that they kind of used also the, the insights that, that also all went into the simulator to develop their PID controller. So there was already, we knew that uh, a lot of the physics that are in this tokamak are somehow already kept because otherwise they wouldn't be able to derive a PID controller and all the stuff that they did uh, from that knowledge. Uh, so that was the positive side. On the other side, we were also aware that a lot of effects that happen in physics are not necessarily built in, in this simulator, but they were left out. And at the beginning of pr the project, we were not sure uh, whether this was kept uh, correctly or this this will kind of be sufficient to still deliver a learning controller or where we probably hit a boundary where some effects are just not model and the reinforcement learning controller would find a solution but it never would work in in, in the reality uh, because the the simulator pretended it would work but the real world would behave a, a little bit different and uh, so this was kind this was kind of risky um, but on the, we had a, a, a couple of experts on both on, on our side, knowing about uh, simulation a lot, uh, knowing about the problems that RL might, might run in, for example, uh, delays in, in, in the signals and stuff. Uh, so with all these effort, we were finally able to uh, have first signs uh, that the transfer is actually possible. And then from that point on, we were very confident that we, we could also make it for different shapes and, and for different various more interesting controls as we have shown in the paper. Uh, I guess you didn't have a model, right? You just had the simulator. And, but did you did did you think about uh, whether it would make sense to to learn a model from um, from the data that you observed in the in the real uh, device, or was there just simply not enough data? Yeah, I, I think the latter was true. It was simply not enough data. The the uh, experiments usually run for one to two seconds, um, 
so they are very short and uh, the experiments, the data that they have is recorded, but they are in, in very different formats. They are usually also under various conditions, so not necessarily in the conditions that were relevant for us. And uh, we didn't even try because in this 19-dimensional uh, input space, 100, uh, more than 100 uh, uh, outputs, sensor signals, uh, to learn a, a neural model or a model whatsoever uh, was kind of, uh, was not very uh, promising uh, from the beginning. That is something that we probably want to tackle in the future because, of course, if you can learn from, the, from data, then the hope is that the simulation gets better and better. And then you can also do probably more novel things and, and or other things more accurately. Uh, but this seemed for us uh, a way that is not possible at the point uh, in time when we started the project. Can you talk about how you handled uh, exploration in, in this system? Yeah, this is a very good question. Again, uh, exploration is always an, an unsolved issue or a bit of an unsolved issue in reinforcement learning. Here in this case, we used the exploration that comes with, with MPO. MPO basically has a stochastic policy uh, in, in baked in, basically. And we do the exploration um, according to the uncertainty measure that that is within MPO so that shrinks uh, during learning when the agent becomes more and more um, as um, aware of, of the, the Q function that the Q function is correct then uh, this this um, the stochasticity in the policy shrinks and otherwise at, at the beginning it's it's pretty wise uh, wide and we use that kind of exploration that naturally comes with MPO also in our experiments um, which is not, uh, which does not mean necessarily that this is the best exploration method. We were actually thinking of, of also trying to do other exploration schemes, uh, but it worked. And at the end, this was important for that work at, at the point. But we are still working on, on improving uh, and, and going looking for better exploration methods for the future. Oh, interesting. So it's just exploration out of the box. That's amazing. And uh, did, did, did you ever think... Uh, you know, to try behavior cloning of the existing PID as a starting point, or or is that just didn't seem necessary? Um, no, we we never thought of that because <laughs> that's kind of in the philosophy of, of of my team that we want to really learn with as few uh, prior knowledge as possible, and and then taking an expert policy into account that that has been derived. Uh, for for years uh, by human insight is not necessarily in the spirit of what we finally want to achieve. So we, we decided to start from scratch here. Uh, and that also kind of worked because in simulation, it, it doesn't, it's not so important whether you, you take uh, a couple of hours or you take one or two days to learn the policy. If the final, final policy works, uh, then this was, was good enough uh, for our cases. Uh, for moving on, however, and we have a paper already on this, like reusing previous policy will actually become interesting because then if you want, for example, to learn a different shape of the plasma uh, using a, a prior policy that has been learned before can help you to reduce the training time. And so it might be much more efficient for practical purposes um, to try out different shapes very quickly and to iterate very quickly. Uh, so this might be just uh, for if, if it, this really goes more and more into production and into daily use, uh, this reuse of previous policies uh, is an interesting fact. 
but then we would use trained policies and not necessarily the one uh, that has been derived with PID control and, and, the, and the observer structure previously that was previously available. Ah, okay. And so you mentioned the actions space, 19 dimensions, and, and uh, I saw an observation dimension of 90. So there's, there's a, can you talk about the reward uh, design in, in this project? Yeah, so the reward design was uh, basically more or less straightforward to what we want to achieve. So there's basically this outer flux line, which defines the shape of the plasma. And we have points on this outer flux line that we wanted to have at certain positions, kind of to define the shape. And the, the reward was basically uh, derived from, from the error between the current flux line and where the target flux line. So it's basically like a, a classical um, a classical control uh, where you want to reduce the error towards a, a certain reference point. Um, and this was the inspiration for, for, the, um, for the reward. Uh, and then the reward was also having some shaping exper uh, shaping elements so that uh, it's not only if you if you reach uh, the the target point with a certain position then you get a reward of one uh, and otherwise you get a reward of zero uh, but already if you're getting close to it you're getting more and more rewards so that you actually have a bit of a shaping and that the, the reinforcement learning uh, uh, problem becomes a bit more manageable uh, for the for the learning controller and was that something you were iter doing a lot of iteration on or, or was that that uh, pretty straightforward i think of course finally for the final solution i think there uh, a lot of experience has got gone into that uh, but in general to 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 show a, or to have the first sights of, of that it actually is is learnable and that it, it works that was pretty much uh, uh, done with the experience that we had from all the control problems that we did uh, uh, in all the years before that. Uh, so the structure is not a, a, a particular surprise. It's just then the final parameters and how you want to tune it in order to get the best possible performance on the final on the final task that you want to solve. Yeah, but uh, it's uh, so the, the it's so so basically to summarize uh, the general structure. That is something that is kind of known now in between uh, uh, meanwhile uh, so we know how to deal with these kinds of problem in a more or less standard way and this is where we want to head to have a, a standard tool to derive all kinds of sorts of controllers um, but then of course the final fine-tuning where you say oh probably i trade off a bit uh, the accuracy on, on that point with the with the accuracy on another point because this gives me better problems in practice this, of course, still needs a bit of, of expert insight and uh, hand tuning, and, and there has some effort has gone also in this kind of questions uh, for, for, for producing the final results in the paper. I read that uh, the system had a quite a high control frequency at 10, 10 kilohertz, and so your actor needed to be really fast to be able to be execute uh, within that, that high frequency. And, uh, it was interesting to read about the, the critic being a, a larger network and having you know many more parameters in the actor and also the the, the critic having uh, recurrent units so it has some kind of memory and um, and so it can and I understand that was to help it track state over time um, was it was it obvious to use that that asymmetric uh, design of the, the, the very different critic to the actor and the recurrent units in the, in the critic? Was it, uh, or or did you have to ex explore the problem more to come to that uh, that design? Yeah, it was not 
completely obvious, uh, in particular this asymmetric design, so that we have a different choice for the critic and the actor. This was uh, kind of something that only developed during the project. Uh, for us, it's always kind of, uh, we think we are aware that for, for the reinforcement learning, the dynamic programming to work at all, we are relying on a state information, which really, uh, and the important property of that is that from the state and the action, you can infer the successor state. And usually this is not the case if you only have the observations, because observations are usually not the full state image. So the, the default uh, is in principle that you have some kind of memory, either explicitly by having um, also uh, inputs from the past, or that you're actually using a recurrent network to kind of make up for the deficiency from coming from the observations to, to give the actor and the critic a chance to come up with a state by itself. So we, we were kind of sure that we also need something in the architecture. Um, I would have also liked to, to have more uh, recurrency probably in the controller, um, but that was kind of would have also kind of made the controller much more slower. Uh, so that we were happy that at the end it worked out to have the, the recurrency and all the, the heavy uh, weighted uh, computations only in the critic that does not play a, a role in the real world control and the real time control. And the, the basic controller itself could basically directly get from the observations to a reasonable control signal and still control the plant. So that was then the, the reasoning for, for that particular choice. Um, on, on the one side, the default would have been recurrency in controller and actor, uh, but since practical constraints like uh, this 10,000 uh, uh, control actions per second uh, required us to, to the controller to run very fast, we ended up with a controller having no recurrency at the end. Interesting. So, so really, all, only the critic has a much more complete picture of the state, and the actor is, but the actor is is able to get away with its its very simplistic notion of state somehow. Is that what's happening here? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's happening. Interesting. Okay. Wow, that's so cool. Can you tell us about how the uh, the people at EPFL and the controls people there uh, responded to to the work you're doing and the, and and the RL based controller? Yeah, I, I think it was. So one thing that I have to say is, is that they are very knowledgeable people. So we were very happy to really meet experts in, in both uh, plasma physics and in control there. Um, and of course, uh, and that they were open to do a kind of a new approach to this. And uh, I think at the end, they, at the beginning, they were also a bit skeptical whether this is possible because they have put a lot of effort in, in de designing their control system. And, and could a neural network then, then do the same thing that they have derived over years? So that was a big question. Uh, but at the end, when, when the first controller worked, uh, we were all really happy that, that it actually could um, maintain the plasma for these two seconds and, and keep it stable. Uh, and one of the, 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 the quote that you had, uh, uh, or that we had in, in some of the papers, uh, they were looking at the results uh, in awe uh, because they were not, uh, because uh, they thought it, it wasn't possible. And what happened in, in that experiment in particular is that the controller used coils that were not meant to keep the plasma, but that have, have a different purpose. And using these coils, uh, led to the results that it worked, 
which was good, which was the task of the reinforcement learning controller, uh, but on the other side put a lot of mechanical strain to the overall system because it was, they were not meant to do that. And a human would never use those controllers in a PID kind of approach because they knew that this was not a, a, a good idea from a mechanical point of view. But since our reinforcement learning controller hadn't this knowledge built in from the beginning because we didn't know as the designers, he just was using those and, and they were very surprised that this worked at all. So they found the controller found a new control strategy but they also asked us, please, not to not use it again and, and not to use it in further experiments uh, because of the mechanical strain. And they were afraid that this at some point would also break uh, their mechanical uh, system, which would be very bad for, for all sides, of course. Once again, RL exploiting everything it can to just get that reward without, without any notion of, of whether it's a bug or whether it's intended or any of that. That's really cool. Uh, exactly. And and on the one side, the positive thing is it led to an interesting physical insight that they weren't aware before. Uh, and for the future, it was just us saying, OK, there is a constraint. Do not use the coils in that way. And then the controller found a different control policy. And, and this is exactly uh, why I find these reinforcement learning controllers so cool and also so promising for, for practical applications. So how far is this the the control you ended up with? Is it uh, is it something that could be used in production, or is there still a gap? Are there open concerns um, after the second version, or or what would you do to improve it if you did another version? So we we just continued the work, and there's actually a a new shape that we were able to to produce with our controller that was used in a in a experiment by an experimenter at EPFL. So it's actually already practically used. Uh, which is a good thing. And then we also kind of improved about uh, on the precision that we now can have the shapes and, and also the pre precision that we can control uh, the currents that are flowing, which were some of the things that were uh, not as good as they could achieve in the best case. Uh, but we kind of worked on these and showed that if we really are pushing on these, we can get this to uh, to be a very practical tool. and um, And we are closely we are still continuing to work with the people at APFL and i hope that we see more use of these uh, of these controllers for for different shapes that they want to uh, do experiments with in the future but from our side it's it's kind of ready to be or, or at, at least another step closer to a practical uh, a broad practical use at at EPFL so let's move on to to your other work in involving RL in the real world. Now, I notice you've been working on RL on real world applications for a long time. Uh, for example, I saw one project, um, you taught a car controller to drive with just 20 minutes of real experience only. And this is way back in 2006, uh, long before, you know, um, people would say long before the deep RL was really a thing. How does it feel to see this vision of intelligent control come so far in such a relatively short time? Like. Back then in 2006, did you, when looking forward, did you predict that RL might turn out as it had? Did you dream that this would happen or was it quite shocking to you how things have unfolded since then? I, I think seeing it now so being so important and, and uh, solving so many interesting real world problems, that is like, like a dream come true for me. Um, I was always kind of, since, my, since I was doing my, my PhD, I was always kind of hoping that one day a reinforcement learning controller 
would run in a in a car, for example, to to save fuel or to have a a, a, a better be more efficient, uh, have a better uh, engine control or something like that. So I was really kind of pushing this boundary and and the work that you mentioned in 2006 that was done at at Stanford uh, with in Sebastian Trun's lab uh, at that time at that time they were doing autonomous driving and I had the chance. Uh, within a three-week uh, short sabbatical uh, for myself to, to get a controller running on, on their uh, overall uh, autonomous car control system. And uh, so this was a, a really exciting uh, challenge for me to kind of prove that these reinforcement learning controllers could do something uh, reasonable in, in practice. And uh, at that time, Basically, the, it was not deep reinforcement learning, it was just reinforcement learning with a neural network. So the, everything ran basically on the laptop that I had literally on my lap sitting in the back of the car. And uh, we were kind of um, trying to, to control the car such that it followed a certain trajectory that, that was, was given. And at the beginning, the car could do whatever it, it, it liked. Uh, so it was exploring very heavily and you could sense the exploration by uh, kind of being bounced back and forth in the car uh, but then after uh, a couple of minutes it, it got it got better and it didn't violate uh, to get too far off the track and after 10 after 20 minutes uh, the car really smoothly followed the trajectory and, and had learned to steer uh, the wheel so this was basically the the input space was about uh, between eight and and ten dimensional um, and the output space was one dimensional so this was uh, something um, that was doable at that time but I, I still was was pretty proud that this uh, could be learned in such a in such a short, short time and with uh, such a quality also comparable to their nonlinear controller they had uh, instead of this, uh, in this instead of this learned controller uh, this was uh, one one pretty encouraging result uh, for me at that point in time. That is a really cool story. And the fact that you were in the car while it was running exploration in real time. I mean, I, 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 we, I think we've all seen uh, Jan LeCun's or we've seen Jan LeCun's videos of car exploration uh, running off a cliff and exploding. And so I know there's some risk in, in real, real world, real time exploration. And, uh, and you also mentioned that you, or I read that you worked on a, a RoboCup uh, back then as well. Could you share a little bit about RoboCup? What was happening with RoboCup? Yeah, so so RoboCup for me was after my PhD thesis where, where I, I started to explore reinforcement learning and control. Uh, I thought this might be a, a, a nice area where we actually can, uh, we started in simulation league, so where we actually could have the chance to bring reinforcement learning uh, in a real world competition where others trying different methods and then to prove that reinforcement learning could be a uh, even a, a very uh, powerful tool and not just something that, that occasionally uh, works on mazes uh, in discrete spaces, but really on, on real world problems where others try different methods uh, and probably uh, don't get these results. And one of the, the first successes that we had in Simulation League was to learn a very powerful kick, kicking routine uh, where you have to, to, to take the ball and, and give in a, a certain number of kicks in order to kick it very hard so that it leaves the player with a, a very uh, very uh, quick momentum. And so this was one of the best uh, kicking routines that was, was uh, 
there at that time, uh, much better than everything that has been programmed so far. Um, and then we also uh, learned some, some things like uh, uh, tackling the other opponent uh, or dribbling the ball around the opponent uh, with reinforcement learning. And we, are also, we were also using all these techniques in our competition team. So it, it was not just uh, something to write a paper, but we really wanted to show that with, that, uh, with that, all that learned methods, you could also be pretty successful. Um, and we were also able then to kind of do multi-agent reinforcement learning. So our complete attack play was learned with multi-agent reinforcement learning uh, based on neural network. I think which was uh, in hindsight, which was quite unique at that time. Unfortunately, not so many people cared for reinforcement learning. So it was very difficult to kind of get papers into conferences. Um, that was just not uh, questioned at, at that point in, in time and nobody actually cares. Um, but where we got really interesting is, is at the time when we kind of figured out how to make reinforcement learning uh, more efficient uh, with this uh, neural fitted Q iteration algorithm, we were then also able to learn policies on, on our real robot, our, our mid-sized robot that we had at that time, uh, for example, learned to dribble uh, with a dribbling routine that was much better than anything uh, the human students have come up so far. And then it showed basically the first side that this can also be a very powerful method to load solve real world problems directly. So take this uh, reinforcement learning controllers, uh, take a difficult real world problem and then just let it run in, instead of uh, putting lots of hours of, of design and thinking how to solve the problem. Just let the, the, the agent figure out by itself. Um, so these were the first uh, signs that reinforcement learning might actually work. Um, but coming back to your question, at that time, I was basically hoping that during my lifetime, I could probably get one controller in, in a real world device uh, that, that matters to, to more people, but that actually reinforcement learning became so successful, like in Go later on or in Atari, uh, I haven't dreamt of. And, and this was really a dream coming true for, for myself. Uh, later on in, in my career. So with the RoboCup, was that, uh, were the robots just learning off of real experience then without a simulator? Yeah, exactly. So for the, the dribbling routine in, in the, in, for the mid-size robot was, was literally done uh, in our lab. So it started from scratch, having no idea how to, to keep the ball uh, close to the robot because that can, can only be done by actively, actively controlling the robot. So moving forward or, or turning a bit. Uh, because uh, the robot was not able to actually grasp the ball, but it could only kind of actively, actively always push the ball uh, between uh, um, between very limited boundaries. And, and figuring out this is, is really a difficult task because it, it actually depends on the physics of the robot. And the way it was done is basically we started with a random policy, collected data, uh, did off-policy learning, uh, come, came up with a better version, which already uh, kind of was a bit more successful in dribbling than using that data again. And in, in, in five to ten iterations of, of this uh, kind of uh, learning a policy, applying it, collecting more data, learning again the policy with all the data, uh, we were able uh, to, to come up with a, with a control policy that was actually very powerful and that was used during uh, the competition in 2007. Uh, which we ended in becoming world champion. So that was one of a, a real world success story of, of reinforcement learning very early.
that is incredible to me back in 2007 and uh not just you know not just doing rl but doing rl on a real robot with no simulator and also with the multi-agent aspect um and before you know the the bulk of these rl fam uh, algorithm families have even been invented so that's that, that's kind of incredible that 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 you were able to make that happen yeah so yeah i'm looking back i'm, I'm still kind of proud uh that we, we did all this. And uh, and I'm also happy that, that I could still be a part of that later on by by, by joining, having joined DeepMind and uh, having this opportunity to continue to work on, on, on this dream of my life and to bring it to more relevant applications, like for example, Fusion uh, at later stages, which of course wouldn't have been possible if I would have continued in the pace uh, that we had at the university in those days. Can you say more about that? Continuing at the pace, uh, do you mean that it was slower there or um, the, the direction was different? Yeah, it was slower and it was not. So for example, for me, um, being part of this Atari project where we actually said, okay, reinforcement learning should directly work from pixel to actions. And this is possible. And this is not possible in principle for like solving Pong or so, but it is possible for doing five games, uh, 50 games. Uh, this was kind of a spirit that I, I uh I got to know at DeepMind, uh, and and this was something that was a, a big acceleration to the research for my research and also for the research in reinforcement learning in general. And I think uh, this was kind of all the years before uh, was I, we were going on, on slow pace. We made some some good progress, uh, but now uh, it was come becoming more serious. More people thinking about this and and really um, uh, dedicated to solve big problems. Uh, like Atari was in, in those days. So you were a co-author on the original DQN papers back in 2013 and 2015. Now, we've been lucky to feature one other um, author from those papers, Mark Belmere. But uh, this was really the paper that, that caught my attention. I remember sitting in my room upstairs by the ocean, um, just down the road, uh, and seeing this nature paper and the hair standing up on my neck and thinking, what is going on? What are they doing over there in DeepMind? And that was really one of the big moments that led me to start this show to get more insight into what exactly is happening in RL and to talk to the, to the people who make these uh, magical things happen. So that means a lot to me to speak to one of the original authors of this uh, DQN work. You also did this NFQ, Neural Fitted Q Iteration, uh, quite a lot earlier uh, than DQN. Can you, can you also touch on... NFQ and and do you consider NFQ a a direct predecessor to DQN? It says a lot of things in common with DQN. Can you tell us a little bit about NFQ? Yeah. So NFQ was basically um, my personal breakthrough to make reinforcement learning uh, really data efficient. Up to that point, I I knew that that neural networks are good for for function approximation for learning a Q function, but I was always kind of concerned that this if you do it online, um, then then kind of you have two uh, two difficult processes. One is gradient descent in neural networks to to estimate the Q function, and the other is that the Q function is is continuously evolving. And bringing these two two parts together was kind of uh, always challenging. Uh, so the idea of of neural fitted Q uh, algorithm was basically kind of to to separate these processes a bit. And uh, the the major idea is to save all the experience that you have so far 
and then train a queue function on this experience with supervised learning until it uh, converges and only after you have this queue function stable then you make the next step by re-evaluating all the all the transitions doing the next value iteration step uh, and then doing basically the next iteration on the value function and by this you you the advantage was that the supervised learning part namely to estimate the current queue function that was kind of uh, more or less stable we i i we also had this uh, uh, supervised learning method called uh, RPROP, resilient propagation, uh, which I proposed during my master thesis, uh, which I knew basically was very reliably doing supervised learning without any parameter tuning, and that learned in the batch uh, context. So the supervised learning part was super stable, uh, and then it turned out that doing this on a on a stable set of experience and iterating on this queue function, that was a, a very data efficient uh, training process, which then enabled all the successes on, on being applied to card poll first uh, in, in less than 200 episodes, uh, later on then also on, on the real uh, mid-size robot, uh, also on the autonomous car. And this was basically for us the moment where we said, okay, okay we can make uh, data efficient reinforcement learning work if we uh, work on this memory of experience and, and iterate over this over and over again. So this was the basis. And we also went then at the, that time also deep, deep reinforcement or deep learning became interesting. And so I, I convinced one of my uh, PhD students at that time, Sasha Lange, that he should kind of try to combine this. And, and then we were basically thinking that uh, combining uh, learning directly from vision to actions could be done by first learning uh, from vision to features and then taking the features and with NFQ uh, learn the control policy. So that is, was something that we did at the university back in 2009 and applied it, it to a, a, a slot car racing, um, a, a typical toy domain where we actually got from, from vision uh, directly to actions, but with the uh, intermediate steps, first learn a, 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 a first learn a, a module that gets from vision to features, and then in a second step, learn something that goes from features to control. And so, um, what what we then did at, at DeepMind was to say, okay, what if we don't do this intermediate step, but directly go from a reasonable vision stack to the control directly. And for me at that time, this was a really big jump also. Uh, and uh, because it was involved having um, convolutional neural networks and then a, a really big network. Uh, and the, the big difference was also that you probably couldn't get along with, uh, let's say, a training set of, uh, of a couple of hundred of episodes, but it, it was rather in the, in the range of 10,000, 100,000 or a million of episodes. And the original NFQ wasn't made for such big batches of data because then the supervised learning would become very, very slow. So the innovation that, uh, the, or one, one of the main innovations of DQN was kind of figure out how in the case of where we have a very large set of data, um, can you still learn stably the supervised learning part but at the same time kind of um, consider the fact 
that the data set is much larger and that you cannot do batch learning again, but you have to learn kind of a, a learning by pattern or a, a more like gradient descent method involved in this overall process again. So that in DQN, I guess that would be the target network that's periodically getting updated as opposed to doing the whole thing in one batch like you were doing with NFQ. Is that right? Exactly. That was that was the big uh, the big innovation that was needed uh, there to make to make it actually work. It's just fascinating to me that that so many of the parts of DQN are kind of already present in NFQ, and I think maybe some people may not be fully aware of that fact as the more I looked into it. So that was very fascinating. Yeah, that that was kind of the the input that I could provide at that time. I was basically taking a sabbatical from my uh, from my professorship at at uh, at Freiburg, and I could bring in the experience that we had with with NFQ to make it data efficient and that it works into that DQN project, and then having this amazing crowd uh, of of people like uh, Blatt and and Corey and and Dave Silver around that that. Uh, really also believed to do it in, in a big scale and that it should be uh, possible and then figuring out how this could work uh, with the target network, how these ideas can be uh, brought from NFQ to DQN. Uh, that was that was an amazing experience for me um, at that time. I bet. So the journey from uh, from Carpole to Tokamak was quite, was quite a journey, right? <laughs> <laughs> from like the hello world of real world RL. To, uh, to really sophisticated applications. Actually, an honor to have you on the show and to hear about all this, but we're not done yet. I want to hear, hear about your current work. You have a paper called Collect and Infer, and it's largely about data efficiency. There's some uh, phrases which I found interesting in this paper, explicitly modeling RL as two separate but interconnected processes, concerned with data collection and knowledge inference, and also interpolation between pure offline batch and more conventional online learning. Can you tell us about collect and infer? Is this more a philosophy? Is it an algorithm? Is it, is it an exploration method? What is collect and infer? Uh, thanks for raising this question. Uh, I think it's more a philosophy or, or kind of a, a change in viewpoint. Uh, coming from classical RL, uh, very much is really online. So you, you, you make an experience, you update your policy, uh, you, you have the next uh, experience, you update the policy. And NFQ was already kind of deviating from that in, in saying, okay, no, the, the experience that you have, it, it's actual uh, very precious information. You, you shouldn't throw it away, but you should reuse it over and over again to be, become data efficient. Um, what's still done in, in the class or coming from the classical reinforcement learning work is that you basically always follow a policy and then exploration is kind of triggered by this policy by doing epsilon greedy exploration as one example or having a, another scheme that is added to that policy. And with this collect and infer, uh, I wanted just to, to change uh, the, the viewpoint a bit and say, uh, look, it's, it's really, if you want to get data efficient, then one thing is really important that if you have a set of data, then you should really squeeze out everything. It's not just probably making one gradient step, but make as many gradient steps as you wish, because the important step is not the computation, or the important thing for me is not the computation that goes into it, but it's really that uh, the experience with the real world, that is what, what is costly in the data efficient framework. For example, if you want to control a robot, then every single step that you do in the real world costs you something in, with respect of time. So you really want to minimize that kind of interaction. 
So inference, getting everything out of the data, that is very important. And then the other, the orthogonal process to it, or the dual process to it, is if you are if you are accepting accepting this, uh, then you shouldn't probably necessarily uh, just do exploration by exploiting the current policy, but you should really ask yourself: I have my data set. Uh, where in this distribution of experience uh, should I collect more data in order to make this uh, the the extraction of the policy? Uh, even more successful the next time. So you should actively ask for holes in your experience set, set and then really try actively to capture that kind of experience. And, and I know this is kind of probably, uh, if I say it like this, is more or less trivial, but uh, I, I don't see a lot of work in exactly that direction. And I, I've, with this collect and infer, I just wanted to make people aware that um, exploration is is more uh, or is, is the crucial other part uh, when we get the inference process uh, right, going from data to a policy, uh, then collecting the, the most important data, the most relevant data to uh, to improve the policy. Uh, that is next the next question. And uh, having this viewpoint probably will change the way how we do exploration in the future. So uh, collect and infer. Is, is rather a philosophy where, where we kind of also try to uh, orient our work towards. It's rather a philosophy than already a set of solution methods uh, that solve the problem in, in the best way. But hopefully with our future research, our current and future research, we will help to, uh, in, the, in this collect and infer philosophy, we will hope to, to make the reinforcement learning controllers more and more data efficient, even in, in very complex reinforcement learning control problems. So in this paradigm, do you try to interleave exploration uh, with exploitation, or are you trying to do both at the absolutely at the same time? And, and I, I'm, I'm seeing some parallel here to like say maximum entropy RL, where uh, there's this constant drive to push the envelope of what we've seen while still uh, trying to perform. I think at, it's it's really from from the philosophical philosophical st standpoint it's really to do it in different stages and and uh, to say okay you have a uh, you have currently a, a set of experience take your time do inference on this probably not only learn a policy but also try to get some auxiliary rewards out of that uh, take your time learn a model take your time think of different representations and do everything that you want and once you're ready then carefully decide uh, where to collect your next uh, thousand data points. And then you collect them doing the collection, and then you go back to the inference step. So they are really two, two separate uh, stages. Uh, there's no reason to kind of rush through this uh, process, at least in, in theory. Uh, so that's that's the mindset of collect and infer. It's always struck me in RL that um... There's been so much emphasis, like you say here clearly, that so much emphasis on the uh, knowledge inference part of like computing that policy or the Q function, and then the the exploration part has been kind of weak. Exploration is actually, in a way, it takes much more intelligence to do the exploration correctly than to do the inference. That might be a much deeper question in terms of using intelligence than the actual inference part. Absolutely, I I couldn't agree more that. It's it's really like if you 
if you see us humans, uh, then we are very much aware what we already can do. And we, we wouldn't probably explore, like if we, if we want to grasp a pen or something like that, uh, there's no reason to kind of try all kinds of different strategies. But for example, if I want to throw the pen for the first time and to hit a basket or so, then there's probably different ways that I want to explore. And we are completely aware of this. So we, we don't just do epsilon greedy exploration of what probably uh, just by chance uh, would work. And this is what I mean that from, from this experience that we have, we probably want also to derive some models so that we get these ideas where to explore next. Um, because as you said, I think this is, so for me, um, intelligence, the, 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 the name or the, the area of intelligence is very difficult to grasp. But for me, I, I came to the conclusion a bit that uh, intelligence is the ability to efficiently come to a solution. Uh, and if you see humans, I, I think this is a measure that we also apply to humans. If, if someone uh, learns to, to read a book uh, with four, then it's probably more surprising to us than if someone needs 40 years to learn to read a book. And, and therefore, efficiently, if, uh, intelligence really has to do something with efficiency. And the more efficient we are in learning something new, uh, the more likely is that we, we have some uh, novel insights during our lifetime or, or, or invent something new during our lifetime. So efficiency uh, and being and really exploiting all the knowledge that we have to be efficient in, in exploration in the things where we spend our lifetime on, um, that is really crucial for us. And why shouldn't it be crucial for reinforcement learning agents? And then I've heard you talk about uh, generalized collected infer. And it, this seems like a, a more ambitious ver, uh, vision and a more abstract vision. Um, can you share a bit more about, about your vision there? Yeah, so uh, generalized in the sense that the, 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 the basic collect and infer would be interested in, in kind of refining the policy and, and deriving the policy from the experience. The generalized uh, collect and infer would at the same time also, for example, learn a model of the environment to figure out what could be the next steps to do some, some kind of planning. Um, generalized collect and infer would also, for example, learn uh, new reward functions based on some curiosity measures, being aware where it hasn't been in state space and where it's probably interesting to go next. Um, it could also be something that uh, learns a representation and learns the same policy that it has learned before, but with a completely different representation as inputs in order, for example, because a, a different representation might generalize in, in completely novel ways. It, it might not be as, as good as solving the original task, but it probably might be uh, at least uh, useful to learn new tasks. And then so generalized collect and infer would for me be um, uh, mainly what kind of knowledge can we also derive from the experience uh, that at the end is important for the agent to behave more, behave better in the environment. That is the part that we are seeing. So the policy would be more and more sophisticated, but uh, the knowledge inside the agent is, is much richer, uh, probably comparable to a, a, a human uh, can, for example, uh, shoot a ball um, with, with, a, with its foot. 
with their food. But at the same time, they can also probably explain why they are doing exactly, why they are passing exactly to that uh, teammate and not to the other. So uh, there's a lot of uh, additional, uh, additional knowledge generated from the experience and generalized uh, collect and infer uh, would mean exactly that, so that we are not directly just optimizing policies, but we are we are optimizing policies, but with the with the help of other forms of knowledge that are useful to uh, to make the agent more and more efficient during its lifetime. Are you interested in in explainability of these real world systems, or do you feel like the explainability is very important, or is there a way to make these systems safe without explainability? How, how do you feel about explainability and its role in, in, uh, in RL, especially in the real world? Yeah, I, I think explainability in general will be very important. Uh, I'm personally not so much interested in explainability per se, but I think if, if agents are actually able to reflect what they are doing, they will get better in exploration. And that's the aspect of explainability I would be interested in. So for, for me, explain, explainability is probably something that would emergently arise from an agent that is more and more aware of their environment and what actually how the environment connects, um, rather than something that I would build in in first place uh, for the reason to make AI systems uh, safer. Uh, again, I, I'm, I, I think explainability per se is a very important research topic. Uh, I, it's just, um, I, I think the interest of explainability for me uh, is really also again thought from this, from this perspective of uh, this is probably something that emergently will happen uh, once we require our agents to be more efficient. And uh, one probably one concrete example would be uh, that uh, it could be if an agent, for example, learns to push something from images, uh, then there's no reason for it to understand that what it push pushes is an object or there's, there's the idea of an object. But if, if an agent uh, uh, needs to, to push uh, several things in the environment, then it's probably very useful to have to develop the idea of an object in, in an internal representation, uh, so to generalize what he ha it has learned before, and then it could also explain uh, what an object means to it. And so it comes basically through the back door of efficiency. It's explainability leading to better efficiency through understanding, something like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so, but then in general, aside from explainability, just, just talking about safety in general, how do you think about the process of deciding that a controller could be used in the real world? Like for, say, for example, the Tokamak controller, is it enough that it worked in the experiment so far? Or is there somewhere, like, I guess the, the, the dimensionality of these controllers is so high that the challenge of being sure that it's going to do something sensible across all the possible state space um, seems like a challenge. So how, how do you how do you think about that challenge and or is that is that a separate challenge from what you're focused on? I think it's it's a very important challenge and I think if we want to make reinforcement learning to be uh, applicable in the real world, we need to solve that problem. 
Uh, it's currently not in the inner focus of what we are actually doing because we are uh, still kind of fighting that, that we get these uh, reinforcement learning controllers to do something reasonable data efficiently in more and more complex tasks. Um, there are different answers to do uh, safety. So in, in the Tokamak example, for, for example, it was we were sure that uh, nothing bad could happen because there are safety, uh, uh, explicit safety measures built in around this. So the, the regime that the agent could act uh, was a, a safe regime and there was no way that the action that the that the agent could come up with an action uh, that was not uh, that was not safe. Um, so that was one thing. But on the other side, also, it happens that the agent did something surprising uh, that was not caught by the safety system. This was not safety critical, but something that uh, the engineers didn't want because it, it caused mechanical stress. And this can only be seen once you actually apply this or once you look at the, at least at the, as you look at the simulation and see, oh, this is something that we don't want. And this is only uh, arising through testing. So one thing to, 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 to uh, provide gen, uh, safety is to have an envelope where you say, okay, the agent is only allowed to optimize its behavior within that envelope. And I can guarantee with classical control theory that this envelope is, is always safe because it's in a certain bound. And, and this is completely uh, imaginable for, for a couple of applications. But I, I think uh, generally what, what I really, uh, would like to, to, to see more is that reinforcement learning and classical control engineering uh, gets, gets closer connections because there are also numerical approaches in, in classical control theory and they also have to deal with the, exactly the same uh, safety questions, the same robustness questions and I think we can learn a lot uh, of each other uh, once these areas uh, get, get closer together. It definitely seems like there's a giant chasm between those those areas still, or I, or if if not, I have not seen where what the bridge really is. I guess I I know so, I'm not into classical controls, but the, for the people I I know who are, um, the terminology is so very different. All the assumptions are so very different, and and they they might wonder when they look over their shoulder at the RL side, wow, how do we how does anything work on this side? How do we? How are we sure of anything on this side? Because there's so few assumptions and there's um, so few constraints. And on, then when I look on, when you look on their side, we say, well, "Wow, how do you? How are you able to do anything?" Because your tools are seem, in a sense, so simplistic, and you have to model everything so in such great detail in advance. Um, so yeah, what is it? Is is there a middle ground right now, or where where is that middle ground? Or are you maybe you're building that middle ground? I, I think. One way to, to bridge this gap is kind of to do applications that are interesting, like the fusion work. I think people from control theory will look at it and say, oh, this might be interesting. Uh, there is something in reinforcement learning that, that could, could help us. It's probably an interesting area to do research in. Um, so I, I think kind of doing more and more applications, people getting aware uh, that then there will also be interest from, from the theoretical side to bring their uh, stability methods, their robust methods uh, closer to the control domain. I think the area where it's probably already happening a bit is in model predictive control, uh, with where, where you learn models by, uh, by machine learning and, and they have their models uh, that they all already trust. And, and this is an area where the model predictive control is already applied also in, in practical applications. And there probably the gap 
uh, is, is smaller than in this complete model-free uh, reinforcement learning scenario where we are usually in. But I, I think uh, the more successful reinforcement learning will be and the more impressive demonstrations we will do that this can actually work, uh, the more interest there will also be from, from the classical control guys to say, okay, there's really a chance for us to bring our tools to these domains. Uh, let's let's try uh, to do. And I think there can there there are a lot of things that are that can be done, like linearization of of our of our controllers, or bringing our controllers, like learning them with the neural networks, but then bringing in, in them them in a, in a certain uh, linearized form um, that they are familiar with. With so I think. There are some some obvious contact points, and then once more people will enter this area, I think uh, there will be more and more sophisticated uh, techniques to actually tackle this very very important point uh, of safe, safety and reliability for these uh, reinforcement learning controllers. Now, just going back to the collect and infer, I noticed on one of your talks you referred to Sutton's horde architecture, which is something that comes up. Um, every once in a while, and I wonder if you could just briefly make the connection to Rich Sutton's Horde architecture. What what was the connection there? Uh, so I, I think the, the connection is that the Horde was also kind of based on these ideas of doing a lot of predictions what what might happen, and this is very closely to how we also see. So if you have collected a lot of experience. Uh, then you you not only probably are able to to solve the the one task for for which you collected the experience, but there are also a lot of other tasks that are basically buried in the data, uh, where you can immediately apply offline reinforcement learning on and derive useful controllers, and these controllers then might help you to explore better. So I think in that it's probably very related to the spirit uh, of of Hort that you can learn much more of the data. Uh, where I don't necessarily agree, Rich Sutton is much, uh, uh, very much a fan of, of online reinforcement learning, so he doesn't like explicit memory in the loop a lot. Uh, and I think I can see where this comes from, because the brain obviously probably don't, doesn't have a, an explicit memory of all of our experience in the form of observation action, next obs observation. Uh, it also has to deal with this kind of online thing. Uh, but I think unless we are uh, understand everything completely, how the brain works and how we can put it in, in big neural networks, all the data that we've collected. Uh, this explicit memory uh, idea allows us to do a, a lot of things very data efficient uh, and in a different way as the original hard architecture did it, um, because we are able to always revisit the data that we have experienced. We can uh, derive new skills from the old data and just put these skills to a skill library and then uh, much quicker uh, build a very capable agent. But the original idea of, of Hort, uh, like, like to learn a lot of prediction things at the same time, uh, was very much an inspiration of, of this scheduled auxiliary control that we came up later, which is on the basis of this collect and infer idea. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. I, I did a project based on, on Horde in twenty back in twenty nineteen for one of these NeurIPS competitions, and I had a predictive model that fed its output into the RL. And that was the the relation to Horde here, having this separate predictive model. 
And I didn't know if it was a good idea. I didn't have enough time to work out all the issues, but the model wasn't perfect, and that caused problems downstream. The whole thing worked, but it, it, didn't, it didn't have great performance. I learned a lot from doing it, but I always wondered how far you could take that concept. And it seems like with generalized and collect and infer, you've, you've kind of taken that vision much, much further, which is exciting. Yeah, I, I've, I fully agree. That's a very interesting area to explore further. So you talk about artificial general control intelligence. Now, this is a phrase I haven't heard anywhere else. What do you mean by AGCI, and and how does it relate to to AGI? Yeah, so I, I think it was basically a, a way to position uh, my team at DeepMind, the, the control team, um, where the the idea of of DeepMind was uh, at the beginning, from the beginning, to to solve artificial general intelligence. Um, or to solve intelligence, to understand intelligence, I thought maybe for a small team as mine, it would be a good idea to be a, a bit more uh, to be a bit more focused. And therefore, I added this term control intelligence. So I see this as something that is working on the direct interaction with the real world. Therefore, this closed loop control being very important uh, to interact with the real world. Uh, and aiming for these closed, understanding how to do these closed loop controllers. Um, and the generality comes in from the fact that uh, we want to bring in as few prior domain knowledge as possible. So we are really interested in concepts uh, that can work over a wide range of applications and not are not just are tailored uh, to, to one uh, single application. And that's uh, basically the uh, the mission of, of the control team uh, to come up with controller designs that are uh, general, that only have general principles that can work directly only from interacting with the world, uh, with the real world, with own experience, and still being able to have a very powerful final control performance. So data efficiency uh, is one thing. On, on the one thing, so that it actually can be uh, applied to robots that and, and collect the experience there. Uh, but the other important aspect is that we want to bring it as few prior domain knowledge and engineering as possible. And this is expressed by the generality in this AGCI uh, um, term. And do you foresee this as a collection of, of methods more insights, or do you foresee this as an artifact that you're constructing this this one controller to rule them all? Um, how do you see the how do you see that playing out? Yeah, ideally, so that is the the final dream to have a, a an agent, uh, and you just plug in the sensors, you just pl plug in or tell it what the actions are, you just tell it the goal, and it just runs and uh, and solves the task. That is that is the final. Uh, the final vision that we are we are working towards in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, I don't know. But at least that's the North Star where we're heading towards. But looking back, uh, you know, to, in the years before GPT-3 came out, um, I, I think it's fair to say at least some people thought that the, the first powerful AIs would be RL agents that were trained uh, in the way that we were seeing at the time. To tabula rasa without without um, prior knowledge, and then but with the advent of these these powerful LLMs in the in the in the recent years and their focus on pre-training and then you know the current crop of LLMs a lot of them are doing this uh, supervised fine tuning 
And so there's some kind of comments about, you know, how important is RL really? And, uh, and how do you feel about how central RL is on this, this whole journey to, to AGI? Yeah, so for me personally, I think RL will come back and it will play an important role, at least at, at this lower level interaction with the real world. I, I, at the moment, I can't see another way to learn these controllers than by RL. But I also com uh, completely admit that this is basically because I have been working on RL for, for all my my research uh, life and therefore I just might might be completely blind to other approaches. Um, my, I'm, I'm completely also blown away by the performance of these large language models. I never had thought that this kind of general, generalization that we see, uh, this understanding of concepts uh, is possible at all. Uh, so this is absolutely amazing and this is one of the biggest learning that I have from these large language models. Um, However, I still see, uh, if you look at this, um, there's humans that provide all this corpus of language and they, they provide all the texts. So there's a, a lot of uh, intelligent uh, pre-work already going into until you have a data set uh, for, for a large language model. Um, so humans are still in the loop and the humans, they learn from experience, they made concepts, uh, they acted with the real world and all this was needed in order to come up with the ability to have language and to form all these texts. And I think this process of how you get from experience to something that you can kind of formulate as a text, that is still not understood. Um, and also humans are all, all still in the loop for uh, interpret in the interpretation of the outcome of a language model to bring it back to the world. Uh, so, and I, for, for at least from my philosophical standpoint, the original mission of, of intelligence or of AI, the original promise was to have every single aspect of intelligence uh, being done uh, by being so precisely described that it can be done by a machine. And therefore, for me, at least the conclusion at the moment is, as long as we have humans in the loop, we haven't solved AI as a whole. And therefore, I currently see large language model as something that is absolutely amazing and that is probably the solution for these higher cognitive levels, uh, but that still falls short in, in solving the whole AI picture. And I'm, it might be that in the future there this we extend the knowledge from this, starting from these large language models and solve all the problems of, of AI. I can, I can see, imagine this happening, um, but it might also be that in order to solve this low level interaction with the world, uh, doing something reason, reasonable, building on this experience, doing this efficiently, uh, still RL will, will play an important component. And that is my current uh, modus of, of, of uh, modus operandi. That's my uh, um, philosophy of work. And until I'm proven, unless I'm proven wrong, I will kind of try to push this reinforcement learning uh, viewpoint as far as possible. We see a lot of work connecting LLMs and robotics. How, do, how much do you think that the LLMs could help with uh, with your vision of artificial general control intelligence, if if at all? I think, so we, we also did a, a bit of work um, 
in with, together with an in, with an intern uh, to bring the knowledge of LLMs uh, for 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 for, exa for example for doing better data collection for improving this exploration process. Um, my my personal view of it is basically it is a possibility to to bring uh, common sense knowledge directly into the agent, and I see it a bit as that part that was currently done by the reinforcement learning engineer, the, the one that was kind of saying, oh, we need a, a shaping function uh, to do that, or we use that kind of representation to learn that reinforcement learning task. I think that this part I can probably seen, uh, seen completely done by a, a large language model. And then we have basically made the, the agent much more autonomous because then this is not a human anymore, but then this is uh, the knowledge that is already automatically available, and this would be a, a big advantage. I think there's also another bet that these large language models are so good because they have so much prior knowledge uh, that they can actually also help uh, to to bring their generalization capabilities even to the to the lower level of control. Uh, with that, I think we just have to see uh, what what happens in the future. I'm a bit skeptical about this direction, to be honest. But on the other side, I think that could also be something that turns out to be very powerful, that we uh, just have to pr provide enough examples uh, of previous uh, control, uh, successful controls. And then out of a sudden, we see similar generalization effects as we have seen in language. And uh, the Gato work uh, from, from DeepMind was one example in this uh, direction. RoboCat uh, is one example in this direction. So I think there are, are a lot of very interesting uh, works that are uh, exploiting or, or working in this domain of, of what we have learned that scaling actually uh, can, can lead to amazing generalization capabilities that are beyond uh, the typical, uh, we can kind of uh, do a, a in-distribution generalization, but out of distribution generalization is not possible. And, and, and that I think is very exciting and I think Still, this is kind of orthogonal to the work on, on basic RL concepts. Uh, but how this, how this exciting area develop, develops, I think we will see in, in, the, in the close and, and mid future. Martin Reedmiller, this has been an absolute pleasure and a, and a total honor. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with our talk RL audience today. Thank you, Martin Reedmiller. Thanks, Robin, for giving me the opportunity. It was a pleasure for me, too. I really enjoyed talking so much. I hope it was interesting for everyone. And thanks again.